0: who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now available to buy from Amazon. Now let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to the Progress series where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price and on today's episode we are joined by SNC and physiology lecturer from St Mary's University. Dr. Matt Buckthorpe, to discuss the physiological adaptations to muscle from strength and power training. To truly understand what type of training we need to do to achieve our goals, we really need to understand what happens at the neuromuscular level. How does our body adapt to the stress of different types of resistance training? And this is why I brought Matt onto the progress theory. In this episode, we discuss differences in muscle fiber composition the differences in adaptation caused by strength and or power training and do we have an adaptive genetic strength ceiling but before we get into the episode i just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them this podcast would not be possible i wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner cult media cult media has been instrumental in the development and success of the progress theory they have created brand guides comprehensive podcast strategies enhanced the podcast production developed custom workflows for me and edited and mixed all of the video audio and social media content Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24 fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being the supplement range at human 24 not only helps improve your lifestyle it optimizes it the human 24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep there is a product to optimize each phase of the day My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Learney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting The Progress Theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Dr. Matt Buckthorpe.
1: Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Hi, Phil. Very well, thank you. Thanks for um, having me.
0: Oh, thank you for coming on. I've been looking forward to this episode in particular because we've been speaking to a lot of practitioners around you know what their like programs are like what kind of strategies do they use to try and improve strength and power but we haven't really had anything yet which delves into the neuromuscular properties of someone that might be really strong you know what adaptations actually happen when you do strength and power training and I think that's really essential to actually know you know if you're doing a program and you're programming specific things you want to know what happens to the human body in response to that. Otherwise, you're just programming randomly. So it's really great to have you on.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, no, very, very keen to, to talk about this. Got a real passion for this area where I probably focus a little bit my stuff and um, more mm. so. So yeah, very looking forward to today.
0: Nice. Do you want to give a bit of a background into yourself?
1: Of course, yes. So Matt Forb, I'm unsure what I am in terms of probably Started out as a sport scientist, sport and exercise scientist, so kind of undergrad, master's, um, sport and exercise science, and then stayed on, did a PhD over at Loughborough. So that was in neuromuscular performance, so kind of neuromuscular physiology, a little bit biomechanics. And then from there, kind of ventured into elite football for a couple of years with a view of hopefully going into maybe coaching and, and then got very passionate about kind of late stage rehab, return to play. After a yeah, stint in football, joined a company called Isokinetic Medical Group. So they kind of specialize in kind of injury management. So the general public and also elite level athletes. And so, yeah, I was kind of a rehab specialist with them for sort of four or five years. Then kind of took a spin towards focusing more around education and research and particularly within rehab. So Recently been putting out a lot of stuff around rehab processes, designing rehab programs, uh, kind of with a focus of incorporating some of the strength and conditioning theory and science into, into aiding treating um, treating athletes, basically. Uh, and then, yeah, joined St. Mary's a couple of years ago, firstly as a lecturer in sports rehab, and now more recently in, in strength and conditioning and, and physiology.
0: Well, hey now our co-workers don't worry about the side, yes. join the snc lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> and for anyone listening to that matt has done some great stuff regarding return to play and i've read a few of his papers um you've got a research gate i'm i'm all right i'm sure i think i went through google scholar this yes. kind of stuff but uh
1: yeah 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 got a got a research gate yeah
0: so i'll definitely put all of that all the all of that all those links in the show notes for anyone that's interested in those areas but we've actually got quite a number of topics there which we could discuss we'll have to bring you on again especially some of the rehab (laughs) stuff just to start off with this particular topic let's start off really basic say that i'm new to strength training i do an eight-week block basic strength training what kind of neuromuscular adaptations are likely to occur cool so obviously been
1: been new to strength training of course, you're going you're to see a mix of, of adaptations. So normally what we first see when we first start strength training is not so much changes within the muscle, but it's kind of more changes within the nervous system. And, and so it's kind of like learning how to, to lift. And it will depend, of course, on, on your type of training. So if you're doing something that's a little bit more functional or if you're doing maybe a little bit more isolated kind of strength training. But what we'll generally see is a mix of, of neural and morphological adaptations so within the first few weeks, it's mostly going to be neural. So that's things like um, improvements in coordination. So for that, we have like two terms. One's intermuscular coordination. So that's like coordination between the different muscle groups. Um, so that we, we normally think about like the agonist muscles, which is like the main movers. Uh, so if you're doing a, a biceps curl, it'll be a, yeah, your biceps. Your antagonist will be like your triceps. And then your stabilizers and your synergists are obviously important for like guiding and supporting the stability of a joint. So, what we see early on is improvements in how we coordinate those muscles. Um, and then, what we also tend to see is, is an improvement in, in how much of the muscle we can kind of access and, and, and activate. So, let's say at the start of training, we might only be recruiting maybe 90% of our muscle fibers, for example. And then, maybe after the, the first three or four weeks, we can access more of those. Those muscle fibers, and um, obviously I can delve deeper into that. But so there's kind of like neural adaptations. Then within the muscle, what we'll start to see is is over time we'll start to see more and more muscle hypertrophy. Um, so within that, the muscle size will get will get bigger, and and obviously the the more muscle we have, generally the the more force we can produce. Um, and then we will tend to see some other types of adaptations associated with the muscle tendon unit as well, but. Typically, early on, what we'll see is mostly neural. And then as time starts to go on, we'll see more and more muscle hypertrophy as well. Mm. Obviously, you can delve deeper and deeper as we, as we go.
0: Yeah, what actually happens to the muscle to allow it to get bigger?
1: So obviously, the muscle adapts. All of our training is, we should always think of it as a stimulus. Like Training, training doesn't do anything. It provides a stimulus to the body to adapt. So when we lift weights and when we're in there training, we will be providing a stimulus to our body to adapt so hopefully you're all familiar with the concept of overload so that's we provide a you know a, a workload that the body's not used to and then the body will 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 sense that and it will adapt to that so if we're obviously challenging the muscles so we may be asking the muscles to produce a lot of force so producing a lot of called mechanical tension um, we might be causing a lot of fatigue through the muscle so when we contract our muscles, we'll be using force ATP, and then we'll be producing some, some metabolic byproducts. Um, and we'll also potentially be causing muscle damage as well. And so they're the kind of three main ones, like muscle mechanical tension uh, and, and activation, muscle metabolic aspects, and also muscle damage. So I'm getting a little golden retriever here who's interfering a bit. Um, so they're the kind of stimulus we're, we're giving to our body. And then what happens is through protein synthesis, we'll, we'll obviously increase the, the size of, of, of the muscle through there.
0: Earlier when you talked about how you are recruiting muscle units and then over time you can start to create uh, or recruit more, is that through just some more familiarity of lifting loads or do you have to make changes in the program to like how you lift or the load itself to try and encourage the body to increase the uh, recruitment of certain motor units?
1: Yeah, so on that kind of, well, think about it as like a level of activation firstly. So when we when we try to to lift a, a weight as, as as heavy as we possibly can, Obviously, we're sending a signal from the, from the brain and from the spinal cord down to the muscle. So it's generally something called an excitation, contraction, coupling, but it's, it's basically we send an electrical signal down to the muscle. And we have lots of different muscle fibers, and, and it's called a motor unit. So a motor unit is the neuron and the muscle fibers. And these can be very small or very large. So they can go from a few muscle fibers right the way through to several thousand muscle fibers. And they've all got different kind of sizes. So the very very small ones are normally activated first, and the reason for that is at really low force levels, we need to have good control. So if you know if you're picking up your, your, your cup of tea or your beer, you want to have good control. So you're generally using the slightly smaller motor units. But when we're producing really heavy, uh, producing lots of force or lifting heavy objects, we start to recruit progressively bigger motor units, um, and so we go from small motor units to to the very large motor units. And if we're not used to lifting heavy weights, then we might not be recruiting these really large motor units because we need heavy forces to be able to do that. So what will happen is our body will will learn to start to recruit these motor units a little bit earlier. And so it can can basically reduce almost like the the recruitment of these become a little bit easier. So as we send a signal down from the brain, we're able to recruit these muscle fibers slightly easier. Um, So there's that kind of aspect, which is being able to recruit your main muscle, more of those muscle fibers. And then the other bit, of course, is that motor learning adaptation. So that is that before training, we're probably using our muscles in the wrong way. So maybe our our antagonists are also potentially working as stabilizers. So we're lifting a weight, maybe we've not got the best balance and control. So we're having to recruit our antagonists as as secondary stabilizers. And because antagonists will oppose your agonists, your, your main force producers, you won't be able to express your strength properly. And so over time, we learn to use those muscles a little bit better. So you increase the activation of your stabilizers and your synergists. You, re, you reduce the activation of your antagonists. And that means that your main agonist muscles, so if it's an elbow curl of your biceps, um, they, can, they can produce more force. And so it's that kind of intramuscular coordination. We're able to use more of the motor units and then we're able to, to, to control our muscles a little bit better with better coordination. And so they're the kind of two main types of, of neural adaptations we'll see.
0: When you're referring to teaching the body to recruit uh, motor units that it's not used to, especially if it hasn't been strength trained before, I can imagine that happened quite quickly at first. So all the novice athletes that are not used to strength training increase strength quite quickly. And as we become stronger, that starts to slow down and plateau. What is it that stops us increasing strength at like such a linear rate? Why is it that we start to slow down? What makes it more difficult for the body to continue getting stronger?
1: Obviously with that, as you said, like novice um, athletes probably can't recruit all of those muscle fibres effectively. So early on, what we'll see is, is is a real improvement in coordination. So say you only had an activation capacity of of, of 90% before, then very quickly, you'll see a, maybe a 10% improvement in strength because you're able to access those, those muscle fibers a lot, a lot more. So that's basically just skill and learning. And that can happen within the same session sometimes. Um, or it generally happens very quickly, normally over three to four weeks. So some of the research that that we did out of our lab and other labs show about a 20% increase in activation within four weeks of training. So really, really fast. And then if we're talking about um, like explosive force production, which I can talk about later around rate of force development and the ability to produce your, uh, to activate your muscles really, really quickly, you can see improvements in activation of around 50% within the first four weeks. But what happens is the window for improvements obviously going to, shorten and shorten. So once you're getting towards 100% activation of your muscle, you're able to already access those muscle fibers. So now what we need to see for improvements in strength is not the ability to recruit more muscle, but to, to increase the amount of muscle we have. So that's normally why we see this really quick increase because we're able to express the muscle that we have a lot better. But then the plateau is is, is it becomes difficult to then obviously hypertrophy those, those muscle fibers. And so we'll typically see a very quick increase in strength, normally, normally within the first four to five weeks, and then a very slow, very slow linear increase over time as we as we hypertrophy as well.
0: Yeah. If you're using powerlifting as an example, like powerlifters train at their craft for like years and years. It seems to be slightly later on when they reach their their peak. It's not like football and rugby where it seems to be in their 20s. It seems to be much later, like in their 30s. So that development of strength is a very long process. So if they're training well, that development of strength is going should increase over time each year. Once you get to that top end of strength, what is it that separates those that get really strong to versus those that just get strong? <laughs> what is it that's sending people to that next level? to be really, really good powerlifters. I mean, one of them must be the technique. You're talking about the intermuscular yeah. coordination. Yeah. I mean, they're constantly learning their craft. It might seem quite simple just to be doing deadlifting and squatting, but they are technically quite complex skills. So that's clearly yeah. one. But is there anything, I'm trying to think of like the muscle physiology of someone that's just just so strong. Kind of like, what does it look like?
1: Yeah, so obviously bits of it will be, as you said, the neural side of it. So ability to recruit more muscle fibers. And a lot of that, a lot of the research around neuromuscular activation is really simplistic. So a lot of the time it's done in quite controlled lab-based studies, very simple tasks. But the more complex the task, the more skill that's required. And, and a lot of our kind of phys and, and strength-based research is done in really simple tasks. And so although it, we think the nervous system's important, we probably undervalue its Importance because the more complex that task becomes, the the more the the nervous system will contribute to differences between people. So and so when we start to think more about you know powerlifting and Olympic lifting, they're quite difficult skills and they will take a long time to master and, and to really express the muscle coordination. So there's that learning effect over time. And then of course you will certainly have a genetic element in terms of your ability to hypertrophy those muscles. So everyone has typically a limit on the number of muscle fibers that you have. And the main way of increasing the muscle size is through increasing the size of your existing muscle fibers, rather than increasing the number of muscle fibers. So we hypertrophy our existing fibers. And the concept of hyperplasia, which is an increase in the number of fibers, isn't really strong evidence. You might see a small increase, but most people are born with a genetic limit on how many muscle fibers they they have and there's a ceiling on how big these muscle fibers can become and and once we hit that that ceiling then you're not going to hypertrophy that muscle anymore so everyone has this this just genetic ceiling and i think over time you it's going to take a number of years to get towards that and then those people potentially genetically more gifted and and are, are going to then continue to see those those improvements as well
0: mm. um, Going through my head, I'm thinking like, okay, what recommendations can I give for those that are trying to search for their genetic ceiling, their their ceiling that they've got? Um, and based on what you're saying regarding uh, developing muscle size through hypertrophy, um, would you would you recommend? Or it's very understandable that, say, lifters or powerlifters sometimes go through like a loading base where their aim is more hypertrophy and muscle size and then that leads into a more strength-based sort of mesocycle so they're going from muscle size to where they might be lifting uh, an increased number of reps and sets but with moderate loads around 70% and then they reduce the amount of volume but increase the intensity and that that intensity goes up nearer towards the 1RM does that kind of make sense from like a muscle physiology point of view you know build that base through building the size and then increase the load to try and increase the neuromuscular adaptations to reach higher levels of strength
1: yeah completely yes as long as you've got the time to do that and and obviously most powerlifters their main focus is improving in in powerlifting so if you're if you're a team sport athlete, you might not have the luxury of that that kind of periodized model. But if you're going to get better at powerlifting, then then these kind of conventional periodized models of of yeah work capacity and and then hypertrophy, um, the maximal strength, and an increase in specificity over time is really important. And it makes sense on a muscle fizz basis because one, you're going to from a strength mesocycle strength, strength program, you're going to get more benefits if you've got more muscle to recruit. So yes, strength training will have these neural adaptations, but if you've got quite a small, you know, available muscle size, you're going to maximize that pretty early. But, so by going through a hypertrophy phase, you're going to increase the amount of size, but you're probably not going to improve your activation that much in that most of your improvement in strength is going to be through an increase in muscle size. And then when you switch to a strength phase, you've now got a good window for improving strength also through neural adaptations. You've got like a, bigger, a bigger window for, for, for training. Um, there's also good evidence that if you follow that pattern, that it leads to better improvements. So some of the periodization literature shows that through going through those sequences of hypertrophy through to maximal strength, over the course of the whole program, you get better adaptations. So on a muscle fizz level, it makes sense. And the research backs it up as well for improving strength over a long period of time.
0: Yeah. From, a, I'm just thinking of different uh, windows of opportunity. Uh, one of the most popular powerlifting programs that has been in the last 40 years seems to be the Westside Barbell program, where they seem to have a max day and a, a dynamic day and so on their dynamic day they're lifting around 50 to 60 percent but the aim is you know the reps are low but they're looking to move that as quickly as possible so they're introducing higher speed movements to try and improve their strength what kind of adaptations occur when you shift your focus in training towards moving a load as quickly as possible
1: yeah so obviously yeah the focus there will be a Different type of strength, and we do have different types of strength, and that's one of the, the important bits early on. Is people sometimes think that strength is just the maximum amount of weight you can lift or the most force you can produce, but strength does depend on the context. The context being that if you were to measure someone in a very like isolated situation, which is what we do in the lab, you know, you strap them up on a on a dynamometer, you you use seat belts and you fixate them in a particular position. That's a very isolated situation. Now that means that, that we're not asking those people to have a lot of skill in that situation. But then we also have much more functional situations where we're asking them to, you know, to, to lift a barbell, we're asking them to, to, to do a squat or a deadlift. It's a bit more dynamic than, than these controlled situations. So we do have this like, isolated and functional strength, but we also have an ability to produce force at different speeds. So that's strength at slow velocities, slow speeds, or strength at higher speeds. So something called the force velocity curve or the the torque velocity curve is is one way of thinking about that, that you can be strong at at one speed and a little bit weaker at a a different speed. So through training, maybe at at different loads and different intentions, um, so so lifting a lighter weight a lot heavier, you're going to see an improvement in strength at, at higher velocities. And there's also different strength in terms of how much time you have to produce the force. So we've got something called maximal strength, which is the most weight you can lift or the the highest amount of force you can produce. There's also something called rate of force development. So that's how quickly you can increase your force from low to high levels. That becomes really important for like explosive tasks. So whether that's Olympic lifting, whether that's sprinting or, or sports performance, like changing direction. So we do have different contexts. So that's time and, and how, um, how uh, complex the movement is. So when you start to do you know, heavy load lifting, you're going to see uh, a stimulus for, for increasing things like maximal activation and increasing hypertrophy. But when you're training at lower loads and at higher velocities, you're going to see a better improvement in high velocity strength, but also your ability to recruit those muscle fibers quicker as well. So that is a different type of activation. It's not your maximal activation. It's how fast you can, you can increase the, the number of motor units that are active. And so that's really important when thinking about planning. What, what adaptation are you chasing? Are you just chasing really, really high force? Um, are you chasing you know, explosive force or high velocity strength? And what mechanism do you want to chase it through? Do you want to target the neural adaptations or are you going after hypertrophy? I always like to think of the mechanism that I want to get first, and then you plan off that. So if you're trying to get neural activation, you either do high loads or you do explosive tasks. If you want hypertrophy, volume and the number of reps becomes
0: pretty important as well. Does changing between these types of training uh, then shifts the focus on different types of muscle fibers? So there's the, the type 2A, type 2B. Yeah. Um, all of the, the, the different types of muscle fibers, yep. does changing the load then influence the type of fibers that you are recruiting through training?
1: It will. And obviously, the context of thinking about uh, how to recruit these fibers is something called like the size principle. It's called Henneman size principle. And basically, normally your biggest motor units, the really, really fast explosive ones, are the hardest ones to recruit. And the smaller motor units were recruited a lot easier. They're normally your type 1 muscle fibers. And they're used over longer periods of time and sustained contractions. So really heavy loads are going to recruit more motor units. And they're normally your type 2 fibers that are going to get recruited. So um, sometimes we need really heavy loads to recruit that. But there are other ways of recruiting these, these, these high threshold motor units. And that is also for explosive strength training. So lifting a lighter weight much more explosively, we can recruit these motor units a lot earlier and a lot faster. So if you want to get some kind of hypertrophy, sometimes going for explosive strength training is a good way. And explosive strength training, you will see improvements in things like muscle tendon stiffness, and you'll see improvements in the contractile properties. So that is like how well the muscle responds to to, to activation particularly those type 2 muscle fibers will respond better to heavy loads or to explosive contractions and also on a programming level it's it's hard to sustain really heavy loads day in day out so of course you need to mix the the, the training type throughout the week you can't just lift you know continuous heavy loads because your body will just adapt to that training so sometimes mixing your your training goal throughout the day gives you different adaptations, but it also allows your body to, to receive different inputs, but to get a little bit of recovery from these sustained lifts. So you don't just want to lift heavy every single day. There are benefits both on a recovery level, but also on a different adaptation level to, to lifting to di- differently as well.
0: Yeah. It sounds so beneficial to really focus on every rep because in a session, say you're warming up to a particular max or you're including Loads that are slightly lower because you know you want to work on them at a faster rate so they are like your mm-hmm. speed reps yeah it seems so essential because incorporating that work into your strength work will enable the body to not only recruit things faster but recruit certain fibers that are more difficult to recruit so when you when you've got a heavy load and you need all the fibers to help you out having a a bolus of training which focuses on light more speed stuff seems to make sense because that trainers helps the strength training recruit everything that's going to help you get stronger that's kind of that's kind of what's going through my head at the moment yeah
1: yeah completely and and yeah different different ways of going about it of course is just said that it makes it makes sense on a on multiple levels one to target that through a different mechanism but your body it does need a little bit of time to recover because you know we get we get stronger in our recovery not in our not necessarily in the gym it's those those recovery periods that we need and whenever we're training we should be thinking about the mechanism we're driving so do we want the muscle to get bigger do we want it to get an improvement in activation so yeah challenging those different different methods is is really key
0: as well how do these two different types of training, like heavy training and then faster training, uh, also change the properties of the tendon? Because you've talked, uh, you've mentioned the tendon a few times and obviously the tendon is attached to the muscle and the bone that's creating the movement. So when you see uh, adaptations to the muscle, you'd assume that adaptations happen to the tendon as well to transfer that force better. What kind of things happen there?
1: Yes, yeah, so obviously you'll see... Changes in the tendon. So, as you said, like we contract a muscle. Muscle only works through its interactions with tendon. So, we the, stretch the muscle, contracts. It obviously generally shortens, and, and it will pull on the tendon, and then the tendon will will pull on the bone to cause movement. And generally, what we see is is something called an increase in muscle tendon stiffness. So that is that there's the stiffness of the tendon. It, it won't stretch as as much, and that will vary slightly with heavy resistance training, but particularly with the um, the intensity of training. So tendon stiffness adapts to really, really high loads or explosive contractions. But generally, lower loads are not so good at eliciting it. So if you're working at like, kind of like a 70% max strength or you know a 12-14 um, you know, RM, you're not going to get those tendon adaptations as much. You even need really, really high loads, but you need really explosive contractions. And so your conventional hypertrophy training is not going to drive these tendon adaptations as much, whereas your very, very heavy loads or your explosive stuff will. The benefit there is that when you want to produce force really quickly, there's something called like, a, uh, like mono- an electromechanical delay, basically. But So you, you contract the muscle, the muscle starts to stretch the tendon, but the tendon might have a little bit of... of tendon needs to first be stretched before it can move the bone. So that bit of tendon slack needs to be taken up. So the stiffer the tendon, the less tendon slack. And so when we want to produce force really, really quickly, stiffer tendon means that when we start to produce force in the muscle, we get movement a lot faster. Um, And that becomes particularly important for for your Olympic lifts where you need to produce force really quickly. Um, so driving those adaptations, you either need really, really high forces or explosive contractions. Your, your conventional kind of hypertrophy stuff isn't, isn't normally sufficient.
0: What kind of changes happen to the tendon on a micro level? So what I mean by, I know that predominantly tendons is made up of collagen fibers. Yeah. By applying regular load through it, does that change the organization of those collagen fibers to help with the transmission of force?
1: Yes, so we'll yeah we'll dry. We don't know as much about tendon adaptations as we do as we do through the muscle, but yeah, you will see you will see a reorganization of those those tendon fibers and a, generally a transition in the collagen fiber types as well. So kind of a shift from and um, towards kind of type three collagen fibers, where we'll generally see like a, a strengthening of the organization of that tendon, much the same we see a, a, a change in in the muscle, but with muscle we don't really see a change in the type of muscle. So like at a muscle level, you have like your actin, your myosin molecules. And, you know, you don't really see a big change in the organization of that um, like you do with tendon. With muscle, you generally see an increase in the number of muscle fibers or you are able to activate more of those muscle fibers. But with with tendon, you normally see a reorganization of the type of um, collagen fibers.
0: And finally, what would be great to sort of touch on is you've highlighted that people have like a genetic ceiling. So what is it about genetics that will help? Let's say you've got like an elite athlete. They are one of the best of the best. What kind of things separate them from a sub-elite athlete from a from a strength perspective? And some of this might be stuff you've already touched on. What is their ability that enables them to get to that level? Why do they have a ceiling that's much higher than the average person?
1: Yep. Yeah, so obviously genetics wise you'll you'll have everyone has a different genetic profile of course and we there are certain um genotypes that are more suited towards power and strength and there are of course more suited towards endurance athletes and so you can kind of see that on the spectrum of of endurance and strength and power genes and normally your mix of those different genes will will predominate whether you're better in one or in another, and we, you know, typically normally select ourselves out of sports that we're not genetically designed for. So, you know, an endurance runner is never going to be an Olympic powerlifter, much the same as an Olympic powerlifter is typically never going to be a great endurance athlete. So, and that's because our body will adapt to different types of training. So, if you've got the correct makeup of say endurance genes then you're going to adapt to 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 endurance training and you're going to see a lot of endurance adaptations in the same way you will with with strength and power training and on a strength and power level it will be made up of things such as the number of muscle fibers that you have and so everyone has this this genetic ceiling on the number of fibers when if we want to produce force force expression is really based on how many muscle fibers we have so the more muscle fibers we have typically the, the more force we can we can produce, as long as we can activate all of those fibers. In terms of that, your ability to hypertrophy to resistance training is going to differ across different people. So if we each do the same you know, relative workload, some people will hypertrophy a lot easier. And that hypertrophy will be based on your kind of nuclei within the muscle cell. And particularly something like called the satellite cells. The satellite cells are these little kind of dormant cells that exist outside the muscle fibers. And when we we damage a fiber or we need to hypertrophy, these satellite cells will proliferate into the muscle and they will help hypertrophy that muscle. And and every muscle has a particular ceiling based on the number of nuclei there is. So there's a certain space. A nuclei has can only control a certain amount of the muscle. And so depending on how many of these we have dictates the size of the muscle that we can have. And and the number of satellite cells that we have will dictate how fast and easily we can hypertrophy to training. So it's kind of a mix between the, the satellite cells and, and the genomes that we have, and that will dictate how we adapt to training. And essentially, we only get stronger because of adaptations. So Training is a stimulus. We have to adapt to that training stimulus. That's how we get stronger. That's how we get more powerful. It's not the training. It's the, the adaptations that happen in recovery. And so everyone will have a genetic limit on muscle size and everyone has a different adaptation to training. And it's really driving those better adaptations. And we have do have genetic limits, but of course... There are a lot of environmental factors like nutrition and sleep and quality of life and all these other things that, that aid us in in of course getting better adaptations as well
0: and based on everything that we've discussed more from like a muscle physiology point of view if anyone's listening to this and they they want to get more strong and they want to get more powerful what kind of recommendations would you give maybe from like a programming level to maximize those adaptations like you said it's the adaptations that make you stronger not always the training so we need to maximize the training to ensure that the adaptations are correct to head us in the right direction so yeah like it's like a summary what would be your recommendation to anyone listening
1: yeah so first i think training history really is important. So, whenever you do, whenever you want to design a program, you know you first got to do what's called your needs analysis. You know you've got to know what what's your training goal. So, what's your aim? Is it if it's just getting if it's getting stronger and more powerful, then you, you set that as your training goal. You then need to to do a kind of almost like a profile. It doesn't need to be really sophisticated, but it could be that if you haven't been training for a number of years and you're quite a novice, then You're going to need a different training program to a more advanced athlete. So, we need to know how many years have you been training? You know, what's your training experience? And then also based on what's your kind of profile that you have. So, this is good if you can do testing, but if you can't, it's, you know, do what's your, your body fat composition? What's your, you know, how big are you at the moment? So, if you're reasonably slender, then driving hypertrophy might be your best goal. But if you've already got a good muscle size, then Driving strength more through kind of neural adaptations is, is is more appropriate, and so you need to think about what's your main training goal. Um, so, if you need to have a hypertrophy block because you need to increase your muscle size, then you should design your training program around that priority. But if you've already got a really good muscle size base, then you can almost skip that bit, and you can. Challenge strength through skill and coordination. So make sure you're using your compound lifts rather than a lot of accessory movements. And also, of course, challenging it through the right reps and, and, and sets and volume. So if you want to challenge strength through, through muscle size, then you need to be using things like you need to be having high volume and the evidence that for muscle size uh, muscle hypertrophy is not that strong that you can get it through different different methods you don't just have to do an 8rm to drive hypertrophy you know you can you can do heavier lifts as long as you've got sufficient volume it's more about the volume for for hypertrophy you need to do enough lifts but you can get it on an 8rm or a 12rm or a 15rm or a 3rm and so it's making sure that you're, you're picking the right reps and the right volume to get the right adaptations. So if you want hypertrophy, make sure you're getting enough volume and make sure you're getting enough protein and enough sleep and you know, you're, you're, you're taking care of yourself after the sessions in your recovery. But if you've already got a really good muscle size and you're pretty happy that way, just make sure that you're, you're lifting heavy and you're lifting technically proficiently as well big and reasonably strong but you've not had a good exposure to lifting you'll see a lot of improvements in strength just through practicing those techniques as well so i think the first bit is just know yourself know what goals you have um and then start to think you know do you you want to get bigger or is it getting stronger and, and and more skilled and then just targeting the right training according to that if that if that answers that phil
0: no, that's brilliant. It's allowed me to reflect a lot on my training. I'm starting to think, okay, in the past when I've known that I've needed to train to increase my muscle size, what training have I responded best to? You see it in like the magazines all the time. It's like, oh, if you're working on hypertrophy, stick to like eight to ten reps and all that sort of thing uh, yeah. to increase time under tension. And while they're good variables to be aware of, the best programs that I've always used have been the ones where the reps are between three and five. And so because the reps are lower, the loads have been heavier, but the rest periods have been pretty low. And I've done like double the amount of sets. Hmm. Uh, and that may be just because that's the way I'm built to to adapt. That seems to be the best way to stimulate uh, growth with me. But I've had I've seen a lot of people utilize the same methods and have similar success. So it seems to be that you know maybe we don't need to think about the whole 8 to 12 bit like you what you're saying how you know you could go to the the threes and still find the ability to adapt to that and increase muscle size because there are other other variables you can alter to still get a either same or even better response yeah
1: exactly and as you pointed there like the the rest periods are really key when you're training as well and a lot of people neglect sometimes the rest periods so they'll say okay i'm going to go in i'm going to I'm going to lift this way. I'm going to do you know eight times, eight times six or whatever. But if you don't specify the rest period, you'll get completely different adaptations. So the rest period is what drives that adaptation. So if you're if you've got a really really short rest period and you're still lifting pretty heavy, you're not going to get full recovery. So like you're then going to get this metabolic fatigue, um, and you can get that metabolic fatigue whether you're doing loads of reps or you're doing short reps, a short number of reps. But it's, it's how much rest period you have. Um, and so, you know, there. If you lift heavy, reasonably short rest periods, you're still going to get this metabolic fatigue. But you're also going to get a lot of mechanical tension. So you can drive hypertrophy through mechanical tension, really, really heavy loads, really high activation. You can drive it through metabolic fatigue, or you can drive it through muscle damage. You've got different ways of doing it. You don't just have to do eight to twelve reps with, you know, with this. Uh, you know, one to two minutes rest period. You, there are different ways you can do it, and I think that's why a lot of the, the research isn't always that clear. Um, it's because there's different ways to, you know, to to get to the same end product.
0: Yeah, definitely, Matt. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, if anyone has any further questions, uh, where on social media could they so fire you a question if they do have one?
1: cool So I have uh, yeah, Twitter account and m slash for is the the handle and also happy to reach out on linkedin and just search for the name matthew buckford it should come up don't currently have an instagram but happy also if people want to reach out via my email which is um, nbockford hotmail.com as well more of a personal one rather than won't give out my work email but yeah happy to fire email or again um social media equally equally happy as well just just send a send a message and always happy to Answer any
0: questions. That's brilliant. Yeah, I'll put all of that in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much for coming on to the Progress Theory. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Phil. It's been a pleasure. Cheers.